Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome back to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. This is Cal Rastiala, and for today's episode, I'm really pleased to have on the air with us Bonnie Glazer. Uh, Bonnie is at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where she is a senior advisor for Asia and director of the China Power Project. And uh, she's a frequent commentator uh, and thinker about issues related to the U.S. and China, and I've asked her to come on the podcast to talk a little bit about the general relationship between the two countries, but specifically about what's happening in the South China Sea, which is an enduring issue for many of our listeners and for many international lawyers. And as uh, some listeners are surely aware, earlier this summer, the U.S. State Department uh, issued a position um, on July 13th on uh, maritime claims in the South China Sea, in which Secretary Pompeo uh, laid out uh, some fairly strong language uh, in reference to the arbitration that took place between the Philippines and China, or I should say really without China's participation because China refused to participate. Uh, but it marked the beginning of a more aggressive stance by the United States vis-a-vis that, uh, that set of legal claims and is part of a larger project I think, of American efforts to push back on Chinese claims. So I thought Bonnie would be a terrific person. So Bonnie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So maybe we could start with uh, what did Secretary Pompeo say uh, and why is it significant? So what what has really changed uh, in terms of the U.S. uh, view or U.S. stance vis-a-vis Chinese claims? Well, let me start by saying a little bit about how the Obama administration reacted to the ruling when it was issued in July of 2016. The United States called for China and the Philippines to comply with the ruling because uh, it is binding on both of those uh, parties. But at the time, the State Department said that it was still studying the decision and didn't have a comment on the merits of the case. So in fact, the United States never declared any action that China was taking at the time illegal. And it referred to Chinese actions that were illegal that were related only to excessive maritime claims and challenged those with uh, FONOPs or freedom of navigation operations. So. China, of course, had declared straight baselines around the Paracel Islands in 1996. China has a policy of demanding prior notification for innocent passage through its territorial sea. Uh, so those are the kinds of things that, that the United States challenged through the use of FANOPs. Uh, but the ruling didn't it make the United States use the label illegal to describe any of China's other activities. And so this new policy that was announced on July 13th by Secretary of State Pompeo really is a declaratory shift because it essentially says that the maritime uh, claims that China has that go beyond what extends from their coastline, um, specifically historic rights, China 
usually justifies its uh, phishing, its um, harassment of other countries, sometimes its illegal exploration, energy exploitation operations uh, and as, as being uh, uh, acceptable be based on historic rights claims. And so essentially the U.S. is saying now, no, we also align our policy with the ruling, which claimed that China's nine-dash line is illegal and there is no basis for historic rights claims. So this essentially brings U.S. policy much more closely uh, in alignment with that uh, ruling from 2016. It does not, however, change U.S. neutral. Uh, it does not. Um, sorry, it does not change U.S. neutrality on the territorial disputes uh, in the South China Sea. Uh, so the U.S. still has not said uh, who owns what uh, or who should uh, occupy what feature. But it essentially is explicitly taking a position on the maritime dispute. So this particularly relates to this, the seabed rights, uh, as well as uh, fish and uh, or oil that, uh, that might exist uh, in the South China Sea. Uh, so it's a clarification of the U.S. position. Fantastic. That's a great, uh, I think, summation of what's going on. And and just to get a couple of things on the table, or maybe to clarify a few things, um, with regard to freedom of navigation operations, I think it's important to understand, and correct me if you think this is wrong, uh, but that these, these phone op operations in which the U.S. will sail a ship or multiple ships through a particular uh, area of the ocean, uh, this is not something new, nor is it something unique to the South China Sea context. This is something the U.S. Navy has done for, for quite some time and, and does in many places. Is that is that a fair statement? Oh, absolutely. The uh, U.S. FANAP program, which dates back to the 1970s, is global. Uh, it, the United States challenges any country that uh, blocks freedom of navigation or has excessive maritime claims. Some of these countries are actually U.S. allies uh, or friendly countries uh, with the United States. There is a report that is issued by the U.S. government every year stating these operations that it has undertaken, which countries have been the target, and what specific excessive maritime claim the United States uh, is challenging. So in the South China Sea, the United States has done these operations before, uh, but there was a hiatus a, a number of years that the U.S. had basically stopped conducting them, and they resumed in the Obama administration, and they they have been stepped up now in the Trump administration. Great. And, and the other things that I think many listeners are probably aware of, but just to clarify, uh, one, the, the arbitral ruling from 2016 was largely a win for the Philippines, though not 100% across the board, but a substantial number of claims were upheld uh, by the arbitral tribunal. Uh, China, of course, uh, rejects that stance. And as you mentioned, takes a historical claim perspective on most of the issues 
in particular the nine dash line, which is quite aggressive. And if, uh, of course, we can't put a map on a podcast, but if you Google that, uh, you'll see that that nine dash line uh, is like a big tongue going down into waters that come quite close to Vietnam, the Philippines, and other neighboring Southeast Asian uh, states. And then the last point that I would just add is that the U.S. is not a party to the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea, which doesn't mean the U.S. can't take a stance on these matters, but it does have an interesting twist that's added as a result. And Bonnie, I think you have, am I right that you're on the record suggesting that we should be a party, joining the many people who think that? Yes, well, I'm certainly not alone in advocating that the United States become a party to the Convention on the Law of the Sea. Um, First of all, it really provides China with a talking point that it uses against the United States, uh, claiming that the United States is hypocritical uh, because we are ourselves not a party to the Convention, but yet we insist that China and other countries abide by it. Uh, Of course, uh, from my perspective at least, the United States, although not a party to the convention, uh, is in fact abiding by the provisions of UNCLOS. Of course, its own interpretations of those provisions. And China, although it is in fact a party, is violating uh, the convention. So that's a bit ironic. Uh, But even beyond uh, providing China with a talking point, I think that U.S. interests are harmed by not joining UNCLOS. And that is really underscored this past week when a Chinese uh, judge was elected uh, once again, because uh, as I understand it, China has continuously had a judge serve on the uh, tribunal for UNCLOS since I believe 1996. So this is not new. But it provides China, of course, with an opportunity uh, to, in some way, shape decisions uh, that are made when there are arbitral tribunals that are convened. Uh, The United States will never have an opportunity to have a judge uh, serve on a tribunal as long as as it is not a party uh, to UNCLOSE. I think that also many other states in the region uh, question whether the United States uh, can be effective in advocating for rule of law in the region and particularly in the South China Sea, as long as it is not a member of UNCLOS. Agreed, agreed. And I think um, it's interesting that Uh, Regular listeners will know from our last episode where we talked about the JCPOA and the Iran deal, uh, a similar point was made about the challenges that the U.S. is facing, although the U.S. is attempting to overcome those at the moment in the Security Council, uh, by exiting the Iran deal, losing certain certain participatory rights, arguably. Uh, And here is an even more strong example in which our unwillingness to join, which is not as you say, unique, certainly to this administration, it goes back quite a long time, our unwillingness to join UNCLOS really does take away a set of tools that would be useful for the United States. So before we get into some of these specifics, such as sanctions that have arisen in the last few weeks, how do you see, you're an expert on China and about US-China relations, how do you see China reacting to this statement? So you already alluded to some reactions uh, of China 
to American positions. But how has China reacted and, and how do you think uh, this is seen in Beijing? Is this just Trump administration kind of chest thumping? Is it seen as something more serious? What's the interpretation there? Well, of course, since the United States uh, or has already called for China to comply with the ruling, and uh, since the Trump administration came to power in 2017, there's been quite a lot of criticism by the United States of China's harassment of its neighbors and their exclusive economic zones, um, China's illegal fishing and oil and gas exploration. And so since this change in policy has really just added a, a new layer, if you will, calling those actions illegal, uh, I don't think that Beijing really sees this as all that significant, except that it has of course, pave the way for the United States to take additional action. So previously, uh, U.S. policy was not clear in the way that it allowed for the United States to pursue sanctions against Chinese companies. Uh, I'm not sure that Beijing ever truly understood that, uh, but uh, certainly China has been increasingly vocally uh, critical of United States activity in the South China Sea, uh, as well as its, of course, its policy toward the South China Sea. Just in the last few weeks, there's been two U.S. aircraft carriers uh, that have been operating and conducting military exercises in the South China Sea. Uh, also, the United States has been aggressively conducting uh, ISR and, and surveillance, reconnaissance, intelligence activities uh, to monitor Chinese ex exercises which are going on now in uh, the South China Sea. And, and so the, the Chinese continue to beat this drum, uh, saying that U.S. presence in the South China Sea is destabilizing that the United States is trying to drive a wedge between China and, and ASEAN, uh, that it is preventing progress on the negotiations toward a code of conduct, um, and that the militarization in the South China Sea is in fact uh, the fault, if you will, of the United States, not of China. So it's essentially tried to deflect blame uh, from itself and its own activities and paint the United States uh, with the brush of being the provocateur. I would also add that the Trump administration seems to be, I want to get to the sanctions in a second, but they also seem to be taking a pretty forward-leaning stance with regard to Taiwan right now. Um, do you want to comment on that and how that connects to the South China Sea issues, if you think that they do? Well, the United States under the Trump administration has moved to more publicly strengthen ties with Taiwan. Uh, some of the actions, such as, again, freedom of navigation operations, transits through the Taiwan Strait, these are taking place uh, regularly, but they're not new. Uh, but in the past, they were, they were conducted quietly, and now the Trump administration is making them public. Uh, but of course, there's been other things such as uh, a visit by a cabinet uh, secretary, uh, the Health and hum Human Services Secretary, Alex Azar to Taiwan, and uh, China 
took punitive actions against Taiwan during that visit by crossing the center line of the Taiwan Strait uh, with its with its fighter jets. Uh, Taiwan, of course, occupies the largest of the land features. Uh, the natural uh, land features in the South China Sea, which uh, we call Ituaba, um, and they call Taiping Island. And uh, there has been some concern that uh, maybe uh, China might uh, try and, and seize that island or the Dongsha, the Pratas Islands uh, that, uh, that Taiwan occupies. Uh, we have not seen any aggressive action by China against those islands, but that's one way that uh, China perhaps could try to punish Taiwan. Uh, but I think that China overall is just concerned about the Trump administration's uh, series of policy steps uh, toward Taiwan, also on the South China Sea, uh, and, and they see this as, as challenging uh, China's sovereignty claims. Of course, we also have heard over the last month a series of speeches by senior U.S. officials, uh, ranging from the National Security Advisor O'Brien uh, to the Attorney General uh, Barr, uh, as well as uh, Secretary of State Pompeo and Deputy National Security Advisor Matt Pottinger, all of these individuals uh, really uh, detailing the nature of the threats that China poses to the United States, to democracies worldwide, to the rules-based order. And indeed, um, uh, they emphasize uh, the nature of the Chinese ideological threat as well. Uh, and so the strategic competition between the United States and China has really moved in the direction of greater strategic confrontation. And I think for many observers, this raises the question of uh, Taiwan's security, whether China might uh, uh, seek to uh, try and use military force to seize Taiwan. Some people have been drawing linkages between the imposition of the national security law in Hong Kong and the potential for Xi Jinping to lose patience uh, regarding Taiwan's unwillingness to reunify uh, with the mainland. So there, there is in some loose way that these things uh, are uh, are connected, uh, but there's there's no clear line uh, between any of them. Yeah, it is actually amazing how much is going on between the U.S. and China right now, uh, of which I guess these are all pieces of a larger of a larger puzzle. But with regard to the State Department uh, endorsement of the arbitral ruling. One of the things we mentioned early on in our discussion was the imposition of sanctions. And I believe also the State Department announced, I don't know if it's done this yet, but that it would impose visa restrictions on uh, Chinese citizens who played a role in uh, militarizing atolls and reefs and so forth, you know, these sort of artificial islands that China has built up. Um, but the major thing that seems to have gotten the most attention are sanctions on a couple of dozen Chinese companies. So tell us a little more about that and what the likely impact of these sanctions are. How new is this? What is it likely to do? Well, this is the first time that the United States has imposed sanctions on Chinese entities for 
their actions in the South China Sea. Of course, there have been sanctions imposed on individuals in China for other things, uh, such as creating the uh, the camps in Xinjiang and more recently the uh, threats to Hong Kong's autonomy that uh, have resulted from the imposition of the national security law. So this is yet another area where uh, the United States is imposing sanctions on, on China. As you, as you mentioned on August 26, visa restrictions were imposed on individuals. Uh, the United States has not made public who they are uh, because under specific uh, statutory authorities uh, in, in the United States, they uh, are not able to make public the names, uh, but they imposed uh, apparently restrictions on some PRC uh, individuals, uh, on executives of state-owned enterprises, and also their relatives, which of course might affect the ability of their children perhaps to come to the United States uh, to study. And uh, these the, the entities that uh, were involved in these visa restrictions were deemed to be responsible for or complicit in some way in the reclamation, construction, or militarization of the outposts, and also uh, involved in the use of coercion against uh, some of these other claimants in uh, in the South China Sea uh, to inhibit their access to offshore resources. Uh, so we don't know who these individuals or companies are, but they will not be able uh, to come to the United States. And in large part, this is, I believe, symbolic, but it might also affect to some extent uh, their families or their ability maybe to do some business with the United States uh, in the future. More significantly is the 24 uh, entities that have been added to the Department of Commerce's entity list. And these include, 22 of them are uh, state-owned enterprises. They include some subsidiaries of the China Communications Construction Company, which was deeply involved in the construction of the outposts and, uh, and the bases. Uh, so, so this is uh, this is really, I think, quite significant. It it means that these companies will not be able to easily get technology or to do business uh, with the United States. Uh, there, the decision imposes a license uh, requirement to any item that is subject to the Export Administration regulations, and this can include hardware software, materials, equipment, technology that might leave the United States uh, to go to one of these listed entities. And the restrictions are triggered essentially when one of these uh, listed parties uh, would seek to obtain uh, items that are subject to the US uh, regulations. And, and, and so this is more, more significant. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a long list of uh, companies that will, I think, be negatively affected by these uh, these new restrictions. Yeah, they do seem quite striking. And I was also surprised to some degree, I mean, maybe not surprised, but I think it's, it's noteworthy, um, the language that the State Department has been using. So I think this was a speech actually given at CSIS, and I assume you were there by David Stilwell, 
um, uh, the Assistant Secretary of State for uh, for for Asian Affairs back in July. Um, but he referred to uh, the state-owned enterprises. He likened them to, I think, uh, the East India Company or something. So, am I getting that right? Something along those lines. And um, referred to gangster tactics. And uh, so the, the rhetoric is pretty strong, um, but the sanctions really put some teeth into that. So it is striking that the Trump administration seems to be really elevating. Um, and that combined with the uh, the trip to Taiwan, a lot has happened this summer that um, maybe pushes us towards the potential for more conflict. And I guess that's where I wanted to uh, to kind of uh, bring us in the time that we have left to see what you think is on the agenda in the next few months or maybe even the next year. Are we are we headed towards greater conflict, maybe real conflict, um, or do you think this is just a battle of words at this point, though obviously it's gone beyond words in terms of the sanctions. Well, the stepped up military activity uh, in the region is, is particularly common this time of year. This is when China conducts its military exercises in the summer. And the United States is certainly more active uh, in its military operations, but obviously is, is there year round. There is no doubt that there is an increased risk of accident. Uh, we have many cases in which uh, ships are operating in close proximity, or as I mentioned earlier, uh, intelligence uh, collecting aircraft uh, may be operating quite close. There was an instance uh, a week ago in which a US U-2 uh, aircraft allegedly uh, flew quite close uh, to uh, to China, and the Chinese publicly complained. Uh, we know that there was an incident a couple of years ago when a Chinese destroyer positioned itself uh, right in the pathway of a U.S. destroyer that was conducting a freedom of navigation operation, and that U.S. naval ship, had it not veered away, uh, would have uh, collided with the, the Chinese destroyer. Uh, we all, of course, remember the 2001 aircraft collision of the Chinese fighter jet and uh, the U.S. Um, EP-3 and the political crisis that ensued from that accident. And of course, the Chinese pilot lost his life. So there is an increased risk of accident and certainly a political crisis. Uh, of, of course, there could be an escalation into a wider military conflict, although that is not inevitable. I don't think that either the US or China sees advantages in having a, uh, a military confrontation, but uh, if they do actually have an accident, it is difficult for both sides, I think, to de-escalate. We have some hotlines, uh, but in a crisis, uh, there is usually a lack of willingness due to China's political system to engage in conversations with uh, the US side to try to de-escalate. 
This is actually on the front burner of the U.S.-China military relationship. There is some quiet discussion about the possibility of Secretary of Defense Esper uh, going to China. He has voiced publicly his interest in going. Uh, China has not rejected that visit, but so far uh, it has not taken place. And in fact, Secretary Esper uh, is going to be now in the region and not visiting China this week, but talking a great deal about China as he is in uh, the Pacific. I believe he's going to Palau, uh, among other places. So uh, there. There is concern, I think, on both sides um, and in the broader international community of a potential for uh, an accident that, of course, could also occur uh, in the Taiwan Strait between uh, Chinese uh, military assets and, uh, and Taiwan. And that could be potentially dangerous as well. Do you think there's a chance that, or a real chance, that China might capitalize on what might be a difficult election season in the United States to do something more aggressive with regard to Taiwan or perhaps Hong Kong, though I'm not sure how much is left uh, to be aggressive about with regard to Hong Kong, but certainly Taiwan, you could imagine something quite severe. Um, is that something that we need to be watching for? I don't believe that China sees it as in its interest to unify Taiwan by force at this particular juncture. Uh, the Chinese are frustrated that uh, they have not made progress uh, toward unification. Uh, there are debates in China about the trend being in the wrong direction and whether or not they can ever achieve their goal of peaceful unification. But if we read Xi Jinping's comments very closely, um, at least my analysis is that although Xi Jinping may be somewhat impatient uh, about the lack of progress toward unification. At the same time, I don't sense urgency. And I think that Xi Jinping is really quite acutely aware of the risks involved in using military force against Taiwan, the consequences that would have for its relations with the United States, not to mention the potential for war with the United States, because nobody can rule out the possibility that the US would intervene on Taiwan's behalf. Um, and then also consequences for China's reputation uh, and within the international community and its relations with all other countries. Uh, very few states in the world would say, oh, well, Taiwan's part of China, so this doesn't tell us anything about Chinese willingness to use force. In fact, their conclusion would be just the opposite. Countries in Southeast Asia might be war more willing to align themselves with the United States, with Japan, with Australia and India, um, and uh, not want to uh, negotiate with uh, with China over things like the code of conduct. They might uh, look for uh, closer military ties with the United States, and this is particularly true of Vietnam. There's also risks involved in China failing to succeed in in an occupation of Taiwan, uh, and that could be costly for Xi Jinping as well. Uh, and even if the invasion succeeded, uh, the challenge of taking control and then ruling Taiwan, I think, would suck so much of the resources out of mainland China and Beijing that uh, I think that the Chinese understand now is not the time 
to be taking this time, kind of step. Um, and in fact, uh, Taiwan is not going anywhere. It's 100 miles off of China's coast. Uh, Taiwan really cannot achieve de jure independence. Uh, and no country in the world, I think, including the United States, will change its diplomatic recognition from the People's Republic of China back to the Republic of China on Taiwan. There's only 15 small nations left in the world that, that recognize uh, Taiwan and have diplomatic ties with it. So China actually has an enormous toolbox, military, economic, diplomatic, um, to use to pressure Taiwan and to punish the international community when they take actions uh, that favor Taiwan and harm Chinese interests. And I'm just not convinced that China has concluded that it uh, doesn't have sufficient resources at its disposal to prevent Taiwan from becoming truly um, legally independent, which is really the only thing that would cause Beijing to make that decision to occupy Taiwan by force. I think that's a really compelling analysis. And just to, to close out, to return to the specifics of the South China Sea, taking the long view, it does seem like China has been, as other countries around the world, have been successful at kind of piecemeal occupation, uh, building up of territorial claims, building up of infrastructure, and then over time, effectively creating facts on the ground, in this case, sort of facts in the sea. But the same kind of logic and um, slowly but surely making the claim almost impossible to dislodge. And it does seem like China is uh, exemplary at taking a long view on many questions. And so I'm curious whether you think that in 10 years or maybe 20, uh, we'll be where we are today with regard to the South China Sea. Uh, will the arbitral ruling have any real meaning? Or in the end of the day, is China destined to effectively control a large swath of it, even if the U.S. and other maritime powers send a ship or two through periodically? It's a very good question. And I suppose that I would say that China has already made enormous progress in changing the status quo in the South China Sea in its favor. Uh, but I just don't think it's game over. Uh, I think that Countries in the region want to develop energy that is rightfully theirs. Uh, they want to have uh, the ability to fish in their waters uh, and not have to deal with Chinese harassment. And some of them, I think, are willing to push back, uh, with certainly with limits, um, and some countries more than others. But they just don't want to completely cave into China. They don't want... China to be the hegemonic dominant power in the region. And, and so they want relations with countries outside, particularly the United States, to balance against China uh, and to prevent China from controlling all the activities uh, in the South China Sea and, of course, potentially beyond. Uh, and, and Japan, of course, uh, is extremely concerned about Chinese actions uh, in, the, in the East China Sea. And Australia has really woken up, uh, even though it is far away. It does see linkages between its own security interests and what is happening in the South China Sea. So I am somewhat hopeful 
that if uh, the United States, along with other countries, do more, uh, that they can potentially create a situation in which China is forced to recalibrate and uh, revisit its, its, its plan uh, and makes decisions that perhaps uh, enable other countries to protect and, and pursue their national interests uh, at the same time that I don't expect that China is going to give up these militarized bases that they have built. But perhaps there is some pathway to a more mutually beneficial coexistence uh, in, in, in the South China Sea and in the rest of the region. So I'm not, I'm not ready to declare China the, the victor yet. Well, great. And thank you, Bonnie, so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes, rate us, and uh, look forward to our future episodes. 